0: The Knowledgeable Provider podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Knowledgeable Provider. I'm Jody Marks. Today you'll hear an interview with my friend and former co-worker and mentor, Patty Myers-Singleton. We worked together for my first two years as a nurse in the pediatric ICU, and I'm so excited for you to hear from her. She talks about all aspects of pediatric acute care. And if you're interested in this area of medicine at all, I think you'll learn a lot from listening to her. Patty previously worked as a registered nurse in the pediatric ICU here in Huntsville, a pediatric hospitalist nurse practitioner, and finally a pediatric ICU nurse practitioner. She currently works as a nurse practitioner in the pediatric ICU at the Medical University of South Carolina, Sean Jenkins Children's Hospital in Charleston, South Carolina. She is also a clinical instructor for nurse practitioner students at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Patty Meyer-Singleton, welcome to Knowledgeable Provider. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. You know, you're one of my biggest uh, mentors that helped me out when I first got into nursing and one of my biggest role models in nursing. So it's really uh, an honor to get to talk to you.
1: Oh, that's nice.
0: <laughs> Fun fact, you know, the everybody assumes that the PICU here in Huntsville, everybody assumes that the P stands for pediatric, but uh, it actually used to be called the Infants and Children ICU, you know, the ICICU, uh, until Patty came to work there. And then they they actually renamed it because of her. So. <laughs>
1: That's funny. (laughs) Local
0: trivia. (laughs) So uh, I've already read your kind of your professional bio, but can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your nursing career and how you ended up in pediatrics and how you ended up where you are?
1: Sure. Yeah. So when I was in nursing school, I actually thought I wanted to work in the neonatal unit. And when it got to my last semester of nursing school, uh, they didn't let you do your like preceptorship in the NICU. So I ended up in the PICU and I fell in love and I never pretty much... I stayed there the rest of the time. So I started my first job in the PICU. I worked there for years before I went back to school to be a nurse practitioner. And then I did take my first nurse practitioner job was on the hospitalist uh, floor. So just the general pediatric floor at the same hospital. And I did that until uh, they developed an, an NP program in the PICU. So then I went back to my home and, uh, kind of started the NP program back there, uh, before moving to South Carolina. Uh, so that's where I'm at now, but I'm still in the PICU. So I've already always kind of done pediatrics. I love critical care and that's kind of my passion.
0: What was it about PICU?
1: I think I liked just the variety and I've always told people this, that, um, you know, have come and done, you know, clinicals or whatever in the PICU that the reason I find PICU so interesting and have for so many years is that we take care of such a wide range of diagnoses, as opposed to in the adult world, there's very specialized ICUs, so medical ICU, a surgical ICU, a neuro ICU, but the PICU kind of does all of those in one. And then you see all these different disease processes, but from anywhere You know, the age of like a newborn—that's just a few days old, up to 18, and even sometimes over 18 years old.
0: What are your uh, What are your most favorite diagnoses to take care of, or your most favorite issues to take care of?
1: I do like uh, a diabetic that comes in and uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. I think it's a very regimented, protocolized treatment that is pretty routine. It's like bread and butter for uh, pediatrics. I think Um, I like taking care of patients that, you know, obviously, I think are going to get better and go home. And so that's always nice to have someone, you know, like a bronchiolitis or an asthmatic or some of those kind of patients that we see frequently, they're pretty cut and dry as far as figuring out what's going on with them and that kind of thing. Uh, surgery patients, the I think the more difficult ones are the ones that, you might not necessarily know what's going on when they come in and requires a much more extensive workup, a little bit more of a unsure outcome.
0: Is there a lot of difference between the types of patients that you're seeing where you are now versus when you worked here in Huntsville?
1: Actually, yes. In uh, Huntsville, we definitely took care of sick children. We took care of children on ventilators and blood pressure drips and, you know, things like that but here uh, we are kind of the referral center for the state. And so we get the things that the PICUs that I, like the one I used to work in would have to transfer out. And so I'm kind of seeing the other side of things where we're getting patients that can also be much sicker, which also you know, has its downside because obviously those patients have a you know higher chance of mortality. But uh, we also have all of the different specialists available to us, which was very different than in Huntsville, where we did have some subspecialties that we could consult to for pediatrics, but I feel like here, we pretty much have any specialist we need. And so with that, we see a lot of different types of patients that are coming in for, you know, more routine like surgeries and procedures and things that we just didn't do in Huntsville. So yeah, I've definitely learned a lot being here, um, taking care of like dialysis patients and ECMO patients And just things that I didn't see before.
0: That sounds great. There used to be all these issues with, you know, is the adult service going to accept this kid? And are they going to, is neurosurgery going to come in? Is trauma going to take them? Are we doing this? Are we doing that? It seemed like there was a lot of uncertainty about that sort of thing in Huntsville with some of the different diagnoses. So I'm sure it's nicer just to have everybody in house and, and have what you need and not have to worry about it so much.
1: It is, and that's that is really nice. I will say there there is something about having so many specialists that can also be challenging in Huntsville. Our intensivists were just so incredibly smart. and they we able to manage a little bit of, you know, these kind of subspecialties without having to consult out because they had done it for so long, and we're such incredible physicians. Sometimes here I feel like, oh, we have to wait for pulmonology to come to tell us this, or oh, we have to wait for uh, endocrine to tell us the dose of Lantus when we could just kind of make one up, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> it it is nice though when you need. The extra minds to come together. It is nice to have them just right here.
0: So, like the PICU here is kind of a closed unit where you have the intensivist admitting the patients. Is is it not like that there?
1: It it is. Any patients that come to the ICU here, either we admit them solely, or we co manage them with like neurosurgery or general surgery trauma. General surgery. But I guess I'm just saying, like, because we have this specialist right here and available, we don't make some of the decisions that we would have in Huntsville because they were going to not see them until after they left the hospital and they would follow up with them. For instance, like a diabetic patient who came in as a new diagnosis diabetic, we would often start them out on an insulin regimen and then send them to follow up with endocrine where here endocrine gets involved right away, which again, I think it's great. And it's just funny that sometimes you have to wait around for, you know, those specialists to come around to give their recommendations as opposed to just being able to do it yourself
0: more cooks in the kitchen.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's kind of nice just to do your own thing.
0: (laughs) Right. As a mid-level, as a practitioner, how much, how much autonomy do you have there?
1: I feel like I have a fair amount of autonomy as far as like being in an ICU goes. Obviously, um, like where you work in an outpatient setting, you see patients independently. And although you may have like a collaborative physician, they're not having to like see every patient that you see here Um and in both ICUs I've worked in, all of the patients that we see are also seen by the attending physician. So I don't ever independently see patients like that are being admitted. That being said, we usually have between twenty-two and twenty-eight patients on our unit and only a couple of those are admitted in a shift. And so there's a lot of other patients that I will go see throughout the the shift that I'm making decisions on and managing without you know, having to have the physician see them also. Any admissions that come in or really critical patients are going to also be seen by the attending that's on. But I do feel like I make a lot of decisions independently and they often, you know, will ask, well, what do you want to do? So even when they're there and actively participating, they still uh, will ask my opinion and that's nice.
0: One of the things that our mutual friend Richard runs into working in the ER is that he kind of works with a different physician every shift. And so he has to adapt what he's doing to based on which physician he's working with. Do you ever run into that kind of thing?
1: Oh, that's exactly what I do. So I work night shift and I've worked night shift uh, pretty much my entire career. And the way our physicians work here is they have two uh, continuity physicians that work the daytime so they each have a team they split our unit into two teams and so they'll work for seven days straight and so the day shift is the same dot coming back every day, but each night is covered by someone different. And we have uh, 12 physicians in our group. So uh, every night I work, it's with someone different. So when I work two nights in a row, I work with two different physicians and we also have residents. And so every week the residents change out. So every week I go to work, I have a new resident to work with. And then a different attending every night, which granted, I know the attendings after working there for so long, you know, there's 12 of them. So (laughs) eventually you work with them all a little bit or enough that you get kind of used to them. But yeah, it is a little different, you know, uh, the way they like to do rounds at night, the way they like to do an admission, the things they want to be notified about, like all of those things differ from person to person. So it it can be challenging, but it it also is nice that you don't always have the same person. So if personalities or whatever are, you know, not a great fit, it's just one night. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How are your interactions with the residents just in general?
1: This program that I'm um, in right now is relatively new. Like we just uh, started in July of 2022. So prior to us starting, we had to have these big... Uh, well I wouldn't say these it was one meeting with the chief residents to discuss like what were our roles going to be at night and were we going to be taking away um, opportunities from the residents and their learning and that kind of thing and so I kind of was very nervous about it and it's funny the residents so, my partner, there's only two of us, and we cover six nights a week. So there's one night a week every week that's uncovered. and then if we take vacation, those nights are uncovered because we don't have anyone to you know fill in for us um, because it is such a new program. And so when we're the the night a week that's not covered is Friday, and the residents will, for the most part, I'll say that they hate Friday because they know we're not going to be there. Um, When they start their six days, they're like, wait, you guys aren't on vacation, are you? Like, we don't (laughs) want there to be a night that you're not here. Um, And even our attendings, like if we take a vacation day, like they will text us and be like, what? You're not here tonight. And so (laughs) (laughs) um, it's really funny to see, um, how well received our role has been by both the attending physicians and the residents. And it's it's just nice. It's nice to feel like we really do make a difference. People, even the nursing staff will say, you know, the nights that you guys aren't here, it's so bad. It's so much nicer when you're here. And I think we offer just a very unique perspective because both of us have been bedside nurses in the PICU. So we can answer questions that the residents and the attendings can't um, about how to set up something or how to troubleshoot something as far as equipment or um, just logistically things to do with the patient. Um, But we also understand things from the other side of the provider. Uh, So it's just a unique um, role to be in. And I think that we can teach the residents some of those nursing things. And that has really helped them a lot things that maybe they didn't want to ask the attendings or maybe the attendings didn't really know how to answer and they didn't want to ask the nurses. And so we kind of are that person that they can kind of ask some of those questions that they have.
0: Well, that sounds really nice. That sounds like a very good middle ground between everybody.
1: Yeah, it is. I've I've been really happy and it's nice when you hear people are like kind of fighting over you like, oh, you know, (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) trade that day because that day doesn't have an NP on it.
0: (laughs) That is amazing, especially for such a new program.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, there's always a resident there when I'm there. So I've never had to be there alone. Well, until last night, but um, (laughs) I digress. (laughs) But I, I think all the time, like, there's so much work to be done. I couldn't imagine being here by myself. And I have a lot of PICU experience. And a lot of these residents, you know, they're just doing their like one month rotation through and it may be their first time rotating through. I can't imagine how scary and difficult it must be for them.
0: Riot, Definitely. I remember being overwhelmed just as an RN working in Picky for, you know, the whole time I worked there. Um, what what happened last night? Do you want to talk about that?
1: It was just a fluke thing uh, where the resident had to go home sick. So I just ended up being there by myself and got to see what it's like. And I understand why they don't like Fridays. It's just a lot. It's a lot to try to handle everything with all the questions, lab calling with all the criticals, admissions, we respond to all the rapids in the hospital. I mean, it's just, you know, it's busy.
0: I know that you have done a lot of transport and have also been receiving patients from outlying facilities a lot. Can you talk about some common... I don't know if I want to say mistakes, some common things that are done in like non-pediatric specialty facilities that you see coming in that maybe could be done better, like maybe give some general tips for taking care of sick kids for people who might work in urgent care or or a community ER or primary care or something like that, where it's not a, they're not only seeing kids.
1: I guess the biggest thing I could say is that we see often places treat children like they're adults and children are not just small adults. They, um, they have to be treated totally different. So like a diabetic that comes in as an adult versus a diabetic that comes in as a child, we treat those totally different. And so big things as far as like giving fluids, trying to be mindful of looking at the the weight of the child and dosing medications based on the weight, you know getting a weight even <laughs> uh <laughs> is is sometimes challenging um wow, really, a lot of places are good about using the Braslow tape to get a weight, but sometimes they just are giving you like a guess or like they look like they're about whatever,
0: oh gosh, okay.
1: And so, yeah, just making sure that they're being mindful or like giving way too much fluid to a small baby or the drug dosages being way higher than they should be for for a child. There's a lot of times that they'll call us when the child's only been there five minutes (laughs) because I think they're so scared (laughs) and we don't really have any information. And then there's other times where I feel like, They've been there so long that they probably should have called us a little sooner because they didn't really necessarily know how to take care of the child. And they could have called earlier and gotten recommendations for things to guide them prior to transferring. You know, a lot of our kids don't have IV access. Which IVs in kids can be extremely challenging, especially for someone who's not used to doing them in children. Oftentimes we'll get children that have been stopped eight or 10 times. And so then when they come to us, it makes it even more challenging for us to get IV access on them.
0: Can you talk about red flag symptoms that you look for in sick kids in general that maybe somebody more used to seeing adults might miss or overlook?
1: Well, I think one thing that people often don't check in children, especially like in these kind of smaller uh, rural ERs is blood pressures. Kids kind of can chuck along for a good while compensating and blood pressures are going to be like the last thing that you're going to see that kind of shows that they're actually decompensating. And I mean, over half of the time when we ask what their blood pressure is, they haven't even checked one. Just kind of for your assessment of the patient, yes, they're tachycardic, but are they maintaining their blood pressure versus no, they're hypotensive. And so I think that's just like a big one is getting a a good set of vital signs and making sure you're using the right size cuff for the patient and that the, the information you have is good. I think level of consciousness is something that um, is often overlooked. I mean, an infant, you know, it's easy to say they're sleeping, but are they arousable? We'll get something that's like, oh, they're just sleeping really good with mom. They're so sick, but they come to us and they're pretty much unresponsive. <laughs> Breathing fast is not always asthma. We have gotten many a DKA that came in for respiratory distress, treated with albuterol and treatments and things like that. And come to find out, no, they were a new onset diabetic who had Cosmol's respirations.
0: I remember the albuterol issue being a big thing in pediatrics. Like albuterol fixes everything, right?
1: I mean, it fixes a lot, but... (laughs) (laughs) but probably not diabetes (laughs) babies coming in unresponsive thinking about things like ingestions Um, and trying to get like a good history as far as you know what meds are in the house Um, unfortunately talk screens aren't very helpful unless they happen to get into illicit drugs but most of the time they get into like grandma's drugs so getting a really good history of things that they could have potentially gotten into is very helpful and you know like where were they were they at grandma's house and you're asking them what drugs are in the parents house and they're like oh we don't have anything but no the baby was at or the Toddler was at the grandma's house. And then, uh, obviously, like non accidental trauma kind of things, if they come in unresponsive and you have low suspicion for, you know, an ingestion or meningitis, that kind of thing, just kind of making sure that we're ruling out that they don't have like a big head bleed and somebody abused the child or something. The one that stands out the most one time when we thought we were getting it uh, an ingestion of an unknown substance and the patient turned out to be having a stroke. Wow. Um, So, you know, just sometimes what you're billed is not anything with what you get. So just kind of doing a little bit better job of like a history is, is often helpful.
0: Going back to the non-accidental trauma abuse situation, there used to be kind of an issue with everybody thinking it was somebody else's job to report that. And then, you know, the patient leaves because everybody thought a different person was going to be handling that. Can you talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about that?
1: I guess I've always been under the mindset that if I report it and someone else reports it and it gets reported twice, that's better than me thinking someone else reported it it didn't get reported and nobody reported it, you know? So I'm um, definitely of the mindset of if I'm not sure going ahead and reporting it myself, the good news about that is like, usually the person, so if the ER calls and I call, it's usually the same person that it's getting reported to. So they can always tell you, Oh yeah, we've already heard about this. I don't think there's any fault in reporting if you're unsure I will say here most of the time the ER at the either an outside hospital or my facility have already done it and so unless they were billed as one thing and then they get to us and we're like oh no they have a big brain bleed and you know fractures and multiple stages of healing that kind of thing and so here we have a specific social worker that we can consult. They make sure that the DSS is called, that the police are called, all of that. And so it makes it easy for us cuz we just consult the social worker and then they take care of the rest. We also have a child abuse specialist here and a whole team here, so that's really nice because even if we have just like a low suspicion we consult them, and then they have the perfect kind of algorithm of things that they need to do to rule it out, or um, what test, further testing you need to get, that kind of thing. And so it allows us the freedom to just take care of the patient while they're kind of doing more of the background investigation.
0: Yeah, one thing I always preach to my nursing students is don't assume that social work's going to do it, or case management's going to do it, or a supervisor's going to do it. Like you, pick up the phone and you call the police and you report it.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree that it would be on you if a child went home with, you know, an abusive parent and something happened, you know, and you had suspicions and didn't report it. So yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that.
0: Maybe this is a good time to talk about dealing with the emotional aspect of working in pediatrics. You want to talk a little bit about how you deal with pediatric death or critical illness.
1: I mean it's it's never easy when a child dies, you know, nobody wants to see a child die. You know, death is sad for adults. It's sad for elderly. It's, you know, it's just sad, Uh, but it's just even more sad when it's a child. And so I think that, you know, over the years, luckily, uh, we've had so many more children that I've gotten to see get better and go home and that makes it easier when you have to think about the children that don't get to go home and there's there's kind of a couple different categories i would imagine in my head of you know the children that maybe have chronic illnesses that have been sick their whole lives or sick from a portion of their life until the time that they die and you know sometimes it it almost feels like a relief when they pass because you know, they are no longer suffering. They are no longer having to live in the hospital, having, you know, things that hurt and are not fun being done to them all the time. And, um, you know, it gets to a point where you feel like their quality of life is not where maybe it used to be. And so um, sometimes it is a relief um, when you can see that they pass. And especially if things can be done kind of in the best, way possible. And here we have a great palliative care team and they work so hard to make sure that we can try to honor the families and the patients' wishes. And so we have done some very creative things as far as trying to get our patients outside or trying to get our patients to the beach or, you know, something that can kind of make the situation at least Somewhat better for them, and then um, kind of the other category of patients are the ones who were normal, healthy children that had something horrible happen, whether it be like a car accident or a drowning or some horrible illness. And I think those ones are so much harder because they just kind of hit you out of the blue. They're they're unexpected. They seem you know just totally you know unfair uh, and well they're they're both they're all sad um I think those ones can be a little bit harder. I don't know when my daughter was little, I always like when whatever age she was, when I would see a child kind of her age, it was always hard to kind of um picture that you know that could be my child right there, but I think you know it's it is part of the job and being able to be there for the families and try to make something that's such a horrible situation for them. The best that it can be and hopefully give them some sort of positive feelings about how it happened, I think is kind of the best that we can hope for. And I really do try to strive to make sure that the family's experience is no worse than it has to be and hopefully can provide them some comfort.
0: And I I know from experience that you're very, very good at that you helped me one night put together one of those, uh, is it called a bereavement box, the little, uh, you know, lock of hair and footprint and all that. Um, And even, even doing that with you when they're, when the family was not around, you were just so like, I just remember you were very, uh, the only word I can think of is loving. Um, And that, that really impressed me.
1: Yeah. I, we put those boxes together and I guess it was one of the things that I always thought about was, I can't imagine how hard it must be for this family to leave and not have their child with them for like the final time when they leave the hospital. And, you know, the least we can do is maybe give them something, the blanket that they were in, you know, a small memento with like their hair or their handprints or something that just gives them something to take with them when they walk out.
0: And I I don't have children, so it's, it's sort of hard for me to put myself in that position, but that's one of the things I was going to ask you about is how you, how you feel like having your own child affects just what you do on a, on a day-to-day basis dealing with other kids.
1: Well, my daughter is grown up now, but she will tell you that I traumatized her by being an ICU nurse. (laughs) 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 So she, uh, did not want to drive when she turned 16. I had to force her to learn how to drive. She didn't drive independently despite having her license until she was almost 18 uh, because she was terrified of getting in a car accident.
0: Just from hearing, hearing your war stories.
1: I, I I imagine that that's where she's getting (laughs) that from. (laughs) I also was always very, you know, you have to wear your seatbelt, children die from car accidents, you know, you have to be safe in the pool, children die from drowning. (laughs) And I, you know, don't, don't ever take pills from someone, you know, they could be something different than what they tell you they are. And you could end up in the ICU with all kinds of tubes in your body. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so I, I did try to prevent her from, you know, preventable harm as best I could, and I think may have caused her a little anxiety and trauma in in the process. <laughs> I also, on the complete flip side, probably underreacted when she was sick. <laughs> and so she, you know, being used to seeing you know critically ill children, uh, when she was mildly ill, you know, I often. Kind of brushed her off. And so a couple of ER visits for like an asthma attack kind of opened my eyes that maybe I should pay more attention <laughs> when she's <laughs> wheezing. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, other than that, I think it was always fun when I would have kids that were around her age and I could kind of talk their lingo and feel like I was cool. Now that my daughter's an adult, I don't know all of the current cartoons and shows and popular teenagers and that kind of thing. So I feel like a, one, I feel really old and two, and Matt is, you know, able (laughs) well uh, versed when I'm like communicating with them about just trying to like, you know, build a rapport or whatever. <laughs> sure. It was a lot easier when I had a younger child at home.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I always used to struggle with that because the only the only time I was around kids was at work. So I definitely didn't know any of the current stuff. But that's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but that that makes sense. Can you talk about dealing with parents and families? I know that ends up being one of the big challenges of working in pediatrics.
1: Oh, yeah. So, you know, not only do we deal with the patient, we have parents, grandparents, Sometimes you know siblings that are there, an extended family member. For lucky, that's a nurse or a doctor that can provide uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> questions via phone from five states away. You know, um, so we're we're dealing with a lot. Um, and of course, you know, anytime a child is admitted to the hospital, people get you know they're they're worried and upset, and so the whole family kind of gets behind them. So. Yeah, it can be challenging. It's It can be great too. Uh, I've made, I say friends loosely, but relationships with parents who have chronic children that are readmitted. And so we see them often. And it's, I think, comforting for them when they see someone they know and they're like, oh good, you're on tonight. And they know that we know their child and they don't have to start at square one with what's wrong with them. They can start with since they were here last.
0: I remember feeling a lot of times like I was just there to be the big helper for the parent with some of the kids that had chronic illnesses because they, I mean, they were the boss, you know, they were in the driver's seat, which is totally fine with me.
1: Yeah. And they're amazing. And, you know, some people I feel like get annoyed because they are so, you know, opinionated and, uh, you know, just they want things done a certain way and whatnot. But I just kind of go with it because they... the ones that are taking care of this child every single day, every single night. Oftentimes these children are like complete care patients. And, you know, we take care of them for 12 hours at a time and go home and get to sleep and shower and eat and all of that before we come back. And they are just there the entire time. And so when they want something done a certain way, I'm like, sure, unless there's you know, a reason not to, or it's harming the patient or whatnot. Like, I don't understand why I would ever fight the parent on something like that. And I think it just, um, you know, they appreciate when we respect that that's their child and that they're the ones that are constantly caring for them and know them. And they're amazing.
0: Earlier in my career, it used to really make me mad, or I guess I had pride and thought I was supposed to know everything and be in charge and whatever. And when pe- when somebody would try to tell me how to do my job, I would, you know, my feathers would ruffle. But I pr- I pretty quickly got to where I was like, oh, oh yeah, all right, great, <laughs> let's do what you want. It's just so much easier. And and in these cases, of course, they actually know what they're doing.
1: Right? Yeah. Exactly. It's it's a little different when it's someone who maybe doesn't know what they're doing or like. Their child is newly ill and they are familiar with adults and they're trying to use the adult kind of world in pediatrics. And that can be challenging.
0: I remembered another experience too when you were talking where we were up there in the middle of the night. It was just me and the mother. You know, I'm in the room doing my care or whatever. And I'm changing the kid's diaper because I'm like, you know, I'm the nurse. This is my job. I guess I have to change the diaper. And all of a sudden, this woman just like burst out in tears and said, Can I not change my own child? And I'm like, uh yeah. <laughs> Not only can you change your own child, I would love for you to change your own child. I don't know. That was a that I remember that being an eye-opening experience for me.
1: It is funny, sometimes our um parents of chronic kids, I think, are just happy to have a break when they come in. And so, you know, some people will be like, Oh, they just slept all night and didn't get up. And I'm like, they have to get up every other night of their life. Like we, they don't even have to stay if they don't want to. So yes, let them sleep. I think sometimes people get annoyed. It's funny. It's like one of the two things, either they're too involved or they're not involved enough, but I don't fault them either way. If you want to be there and help change a diaper at 2am, sure. But if you want to sleep and let me do it, I'm perfectly happy to do that also.
0: (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. That's a good point that, that, that may be the only break they get.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you remember the lady that named goats after all the nurses that took care of her kid?
1: Oh yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> did you do you have a goat named after you?
1: I don't remember if I had a goat or not.
0: I don't think I ever merited a goat. Um,
1: you didn't make goat status.
0: <laughs> no, I never did. But I, uh, <laughs> but I have run into her uh, now and then, just out in town or whatever.
1: Oh, that's funny.
0: And the kid and I mean I still I still remember her and she still remembers me.
1: Oh. That's so nice.
0: (laughs) Pretty neat. And it it was really neat to see the kid grow up, you know, after everything, after what happened to
1: him. You know, it's one thing when we see kids that come back and are admitted over and over and you get to see them grow up, but they're, you know, obviously have a chronic disease and that is what The reason that you're seeing them over and over, it's so much nicer to see them out in the community when they're just like doing well and happy. And um, that's a much different experience (laughs) getting to see them, you know, kind of thriving versus how they look when they're in the hospital.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: Being able to include the parents is actually a good part of my job. We have someone else at the bedside helping care for this patient that in the adult world you might not have. And so they're kind of our eyes and ears, and they know their children. And they know if something's not right, they might not know what it is, but something's not right. And so that is so valuable in helping us kind of find things earlier than we would if they weren't there, because they're not. You know, always someone that we know and that we can just look at and be like, something's not right with this kid. So um, it's great to have the families, and I love that we have like a very family-centered uh, unit. We have room for the parents to sleep in the room. They have a shower. They have a bathroom. We make it so that they can stay at the bedside twenty-four-seven if they if they're able to. Sometimes it can be challenging having parents there. Sometimes. They don't want you to do things that hurt, (laughs) that their child doesn't want done to them. But we are doing it, you know, because the child is critically ill and needs to have them done. And so having to kind of stop what you're doing to take care of the child, to talk to the parent and get them on board, just takes a lot of extra time. And sometimes you know that you have to do something and you can't do it because the parent doesn't want you to. And so, you know, that's just a little challenging. And then sometimes parents just don't understand, they don't have the medical background or the um, ability to comprehend some of the, the things that we're talking about, despite trying to use language that's more understandable and that kind of thing. And So that can be difficult to just having to kind of talk to two different people. You're having to talk to the patient if they're awake and alert, but you're also having to talk to the parents. There's lots of challenging things. And then there's the abuse cases and DSS cases for neglect and things like that, too, that just add a whole extra element of fun to our jobs.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's a super awkward situation when you feel like when you think you may be talking to the abuser in addition to the parent.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, and then until someone tells us that the parents aren't allowed to be there, they get to stay. And so it's, it's very awkward and um, yeah.
0: And I, and I guess legally, I mean, really the parents have to consent to everything, right? Unless, unless you're operating under implied consent because they're not there.
1: Fortunately in the ICU, most things fall under like an emergency consent. So, there's not much in I work overnight. So there's not much we're going to do overnight that's not emergent. So if we have to put in a central line or put in a breathing tube or those kinds of things, um, it's because the child is critically ill and unsafe and an emergency. But let's say they need a planned surgery. If DSS has taken custody, they can do two different things. They can either Allow the parent to still make medical decision making, even though you know the parent may have to visit with someone else. You know, like they, they can't come by themselves, or DSS can take complete custody where they will sign the consents.
0: Uh, DSS Department of Social Services. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, DHR in Alabama. DSS here.
0: Um, do you want to talk about COVID? Do you want to talk about what your experience was all through COVID?
1: Oh gosh, COVID. So, here in Charleston, we had just moved into a brand new children's hospital in February or March of 2020. So, kind of right around the time that everything was just, you know, shutting down everywhere and things. But we had a couple of weeks in our new hospital to kind of enjoy all the new space and places for families and things like that before they shut it down and said so no one could visit. I will say it was probably nice that we were in our new building because the old building only had a couple of private rooms and the rest were like curtains separating the rooms. And so for just COVID precautions, we had more negative pressure rooms here. We had more just actual private rooms that even if they weren't negative pressure, they were providing some kind of protection and just more space in general. So it was it was the, probably a blessing that we were already in the new building. I don't know if a lot of people knew this, but because the whole world shut down, children were staying at home. They weren't going to daycare. They weren't going to school. And so they weren't really getting sick. And so children's hospitals across the country were not having very many admissions. And so our numbers dropped to really, really low while the adult side of things was blowing up. A lot of places made the peds nurses go work in the adult units. And that was kind of how they helped like fill the staffing kind of gap that they had. Our hospital, we actually took adult patients and admitted them to the pediatric unit. So (laughs) we got to experience some of COVID in our own unit. So we had adult patients with and without COVID just to kind of help with some of the overflow from the adult world where they didn't have enough room for everyone. So that was very challenging. Uh, It wasn't a very popular decision, obviously. Uh, We were hemorrhaging staff because there were travel nurse contracts where they could make a killing all around the country. So they were leaving to go travel and make two or three times their salary. We were having to take adult patients. We were also the only unit in the hospital that took COVID patients initially. So any pediatric patient, even if they were only a floor status patient, had to come to the ICU. So that was kind of frustrating. Eventually, they ended up uh, letting the floors take the floor status COVID patients. And that's kind of where we are now. But it just felt like, you know, in the very beginning, the testing took days. And so anyone that was a rule out COVID had to come to us too. So we just felt like we were, you know, kind of the catch all for the whole hospital. We had to take all the patients, adult patients, pregnant patients, postpartum patients like things that we were very uncomfortable with um and we were doing it with less staff than we needed and all of the other challenges that everyone around the country was facing so it it was it was a bad time and i don't think we've fully recovered the staff i mean there's probably over 50 percent of the staff that were there then are not there now wow And I mean, I'm talking like people who had been there for years. So a lot of people retired. A lot of people went to kind of outpatient surgery, you know, same day surgery kind of places, um, PACUs, like those kind of places and left kind of traditional bedside. Um, And then a lot of people went and traveled. And then you had your handful of people that like went back to school and left for those reasons. But yeah, it's, it's just challenging. And so, you know, in the past, we always had a whole group of experienced nurses, a whole group of kind of your middle of experience nurses. They've been there a couple of years, they know what they're doing, but they're not like the old school, know everything kind of people. And then you had like your new grads. And now I feel like we have mostly new grads. Or nurses with like one year of adult experience who then transferred to us. So it's just a very different feeling. People who have been here like a year are training people. And so you just don't get that same level of orientation that you did when someone with 10 years of experience trained you. And so yeah it's just it's been very challenging staffing has been horrible and you know people are still doing the travel contracts even though the the pay has gone down quite a bit it's still much more than the bedside nurses are making and so all of the you know younger nurses with no spouses and children it's very uh it's a good opportunity for them to make some money pay off their loans that kind of thing um, and a lot of jobs have gone uh, remote. So even people that are married, their spouses may be working from home. And so they just travel together. And so, uh, yeah, it's just it's just different. And, the, you know, I'm afraid that the years of, or the time of people staying for years and years and years is kind of over because I, I just don't see that. Um, it's kind of sad.
0: <laughs> it is sad.
1: But yeah, COVID has definitely changed, um, kind of, just our staffing. I think for for good.
0: (laughs) Sure, I I know I definitely benefited as a new nurse from learning from all of the experienced nurses who had been there forever. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine learning from only people who are still new themselves.
1: Right, right. It's it just changes the dynamic. Um, But I do feel that that's one of the reasons that people are so like appreciative of the NP role because we kind of offer some of that experience when there is a whole you know shift of mostly newer nurses if you know they can't ask their neighbor because they don't know they can come and ask us and hopefully we know
0: sure how how much experience do you have at this point how long have you been a nurse if you don't mind sharing that
1: Uh, uh 23 years
0: wow What was it like for you going back and trying to take care of adults after 23 years of just taking care of kids?
1: Oh, my gosh, it was awful. Um, (laughs) I, I, we really, you know, just did our best. I mean, we knew the basics and they tried to send us, they told us they were only going to send us like the younger, like patients that had less comorbidities and things like that, but then they didn't have any of those. So then we just got the kid, you know, the kids, the adults, you know, that was the hard thing. Like we were talking to them like they were children. We were, <laughs> <laughs> it was so difficult, um, you know, just even... It just, even our verbiage and how we act at work was just different. It was just weird to like have an adult that you could actually like have a conversation with um, sure. <laughs> be your patient, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It was just very <laughs> odd. Um, it was also really sad to see like an adult who had children who like didn't do well with COVID and passed away. And like, that was a very different feeling you know, we're used to seeing the other side of it, but just thinking about like children growing up without their mom or, you know, I, I don't know. That was especially sad.
0: Wow, right.
1: But yeah, we we had some like <laughs> crash courses from the adult educators on like, none of us are ACLS certified.
0: Y'all just have pals?
1: Yeah, we just have pals. And so I remember like having ACLS um, algorithms like taped to the The wall Uh, (laughs) yeah that felt safe um and then like having to (laughs) use like the adult insulin protocol and that kind of thing and you know that was very like we all just felt so stupid but we made a lot of phone calls to like the adult people and their educators did some kind of video uh training sessions that we all watched and things like that, just kind of going over some of the main things. But yeah, it was an interesting time.
0: Did you have trouble finding equipment, like the right size equipment to take care of adults?
1: Yes and no. I mean, because we're part of the adult hospital, like we have access to the same central supply so, you know, we have adult beds and we have adult blood pressure cuffs and things like that. And what's funny is, like, the second wave of COVID, we got tons of kids. So we quit taking care of adults and then we were like filled with very, um, like, obese adolescents with COVID. And so we, you know, have to be prepared for those size patients. An adolescent that's 300 pounds is no different than an adult that's 300 pounds, you know, as far as the equipment that you need. Sure. The job I was working at that time was a quality and safety job. And we had a ton of pressure injuries. And so we ended up getting like different, um, products in and kind of changing some of our protocols and doing different training. And, um, we got really good at some of that kind of stuff. And so it helped, we learned it on the adults probably into some of the adolescents, um, and kind of changed our practice, you know, for good.
0: I, I wanted to make sure and ask you specifically because of, I, I know that you were working as an, an NP here and then when you moved to South Carolina, there wasn't an NP role, what was it like for you going back to bedside nursing after you had been in the nurse practitioner role for a while
1: it was it was challenging um for sure i think had i done it back in my old unit it would have been like no big deal but because i moved to a new unit that took care of patients that i had never taken care of before it was like this you know big learning curve for me not only with having to learn you know, a new hospital, new policies, new equipment, that kind of thing, but also learning how to take care of like new types of patients. But with that, I will say I am so glad that I did that before becoming a nurse practitioner in this unit. I think it's just helped me be a better nurse practitioner that I understand how to take care of these patients from the bedside perspective. It would have been very difficult to try to grasp the concept of ECMO and CRRT, um, having not ever, you know, gone through the training and ran the pump. Well, the CRRT, not the ECMO pump. There's a whole group of people that do that. That is not me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I think it's just helped me kind of understand things in a way that I wouldn't have if I had just moved here and taken an NP job in the PICU.
0: Got you. And I imagine... It helps earn the respect of your coworkers as well.
1: I think so. I think they, you know, it was funny. A lot of the physicians when we interviewed were worried, well, do you think that the staff are going to be okay with you guys like moving into a provider role? And yes, that's, that's never been a problem. I think if anything, it's like, they're happy to know that someone understands some of what they're going through. And so, yeah, that's never been a problem here at all.
0: Awesome. That's great to hear.
1: And I did enjoy doing bedside some of the time, like some of the time I was like, oh, I can't wait to be an NP again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's something to be said about having like a one-to-one patient and like just spending your whole night in the room with them and the parents and just getting that one-on-one time and just feeling like you really know the patient and got to really talk to the family and be like there for them. And that's something that you don't really get to do when you're having to cover, you know, 26 patients. That was kind of nice and kind of getting to make those little special bonds again was, was nice.
0: I'm sure the patients and families appreciate it too. I hope so. (laughs) If you had to give advice to future nurse practitioners about going into pediatric acute care just as a specialty, what would you, what kind of advice would you have to offer?
1: I guess a lot of the questions I usually get are people that don't know if they want to do primary versus acute and which, which program should I go into? And so I always tell them, think about like where you enjoy working. And if, if you enjoy a primary care setting, with, you know, well checkups and, you know, sick visits for, for a kind of like an outpatient setting, then definitely do primary care. But if you see yourself wanting to be in kind of a specialist office and urgent care and ER, any kind of inpatient setting, then I would recommend doing the acute care. And it's just the difference in like where you spend your clinical time. Obviously there's classes that are associated with these two, but I feel like most people learn I felt like I learned the most in my clinicals. And so I would in no way feel comfortable working in a primary care clinic with my acute care degree. Um, all of my clinicals were done in specialist office, ER, ICU, cardiac ICU, other than the 40 hours of mandatory primary care we had to do. I I don't feel comfortable, you know, doing primary care. That being said, people that spent all of their time doing primary care. I don't feel like learn very much about inpatient hospital medicine. And so a lot of places and states are now requiring that your degree match where you work. But there are still some places where someone who has like an FP degree can work in an inpatient pediatric unit. And I think it kind of makes things a little confusing because your training is all outpatient and you may have only done you know, some places only require like 40 hours of pediatrics. So if you only did 40 hours of outpatient pediatrics, I don't think that trains you to do inpatient pediatrics, you know? So, so that's kind of, I always try to get people to think about like, where do you see yourself working and, and kind of pick your specialty that way. And then they do have dual programs for people that are just like, I just don't know. (laughs) I mean, you can do both, but I I know a lot of nurse practitioners who had primary care degrees that are having to go back and get their acute degrees because the hospitals are changing their requirements. And so, you know, it's hard if you haven't gone through the program to know what what you're going to like and what you don't like. But I do think it's important to get a degree that's going to be where you want to end up working.
0: I guess the things that are available in your area probably has a lot to do with that. I know some of our friends that I know that have gotten pediatric acute degrees are kind of limited around here just because there are so few places where you can work with that.
1: Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And I, I guess that's kind of, maybe I should have led with that. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm going to get an FNP degree because it gives me more opportunities for jobs. But to me, it doesn't give you more opportunities for appropriate jobs. You know, like, if you know, like, I've only worked pediatrics, I love pediatrics, I want to work inpatient pediatrics, but I'm going to go get an F&P degree, because then I could work anywhere. That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> if you know you want to go back to pediatrics. Yes, having like a dual degree would have opened up my opportunities, but there's no way I want to work in an outpatient Clinic. So, yeah, there might be more jobs, but I would never take it. I don't know very many places that would hire someone without an acute care degree um, to work critical care, but like we do procedures. And so we can do central lines, art lines, intubations, chest tubes, those kinds of things. Where a primary care NP, I think suturing and LPs are kind of the only procedures that they can do. So, it would be weird for us to work together. And there's things I can do that you can't do, but we both have the same job requirement.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: It's difficult. And I will say here, it's especially difficult because our state doesn't even have an acute care pediatric program. But now the hospital I work at requires an acute care degree for inpatient.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So, which is going with what a lot of the country is doing. Um, And there are tons of online programs. And so you don't have to go to an in-person program to get an acute care pediatric degree there's tons of places you can do it online and then set up your own clinicals where you live it's just funny that there's no like options around here but it's a requirement you know
0: (laughs) well I guess if anybody has an acute care degree and needs a job you should probably look in South Carolina
1: I know I know
0: (laughs) I feel like this is a good place to stop Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything else you thought of? Um, Anything else you wanted to cover?
2: No, No, not that I can think of.
0: Well, Patty Myers Singleton, thank you so much for your time. It's so great to talk to you. And I hope everybody will benefit from some of your experience as much as I have.
1: No, it was fun. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Come back anytime.
1: All right, will do.
0: All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order.